celebrate. We have a lot more to celebrate in that we have a baptism coming up this coming week, um, next Sunday. And while we're talking about that, wanted to share with you a few little updates about our baptism process here at New Life Lincoln Park. Um, typically, um, you have seen in the past, uh, folks get up and they share publicly their, um, their faith, their faith journey as part of um, getting baptized, and we're making a little adjustment to that for the folks that maybe you're not a public speaker, and standing up like this right now would make your knees knock, and you'd be like, no, 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 and that's the thing that's keeping you from uh, getting baptized. Um, and so what we, what we want to share with you is, th is this, right? Baptism is all by itself a public proclamation of your faith, um, this new life that we have in Jesus. Um, and so that's why we always have people share their testimony. But what's new is that we're going to give provide three different options for people as they're getting baptized and how to share their testimony. So first one is going to be like we have you've seen already. Somebody gets up before they get baptized, they share, talk about their life, their faith journey. The next one is putting that on a video. So sometimes just talking to the screen is a little bit easier than talking to the faces out there. Um, and so we would vi video that and we would show that during the service. And the last option is to write out your testimony and then we would print that out and share it with the congregation. And um, if, if we wanted to, either you could read it, because um, some, sometimes it's easier to do this than do this. Um, or you, uh, we'll just share it with the congregation. So uh, wanted to make sure that everybody knew that if, if you're thinking about getting baptized and that public speaking part of it was something keeping you, we don't want that to be a barrier at all. Um, so if, and if you are thinking about getting baptized, please come talk to one of the leaders here, talk to Bobby. Um, we would love to talk to you more about that. And with that in mind, one more thing that we just want to make sure everybody knows happens when you get baptized, or when you're thinking about getting baptized, is we have a book that we've affectionately called The Blue Book, but it's actually called Begin. And uh, so you will go through that book with a, a mentor, a discipler. Uh, we don't have a really formal name for that other than like the pal that goes through that with you. Um, <laughs> but uh, you'll go through that with, with that. And that's just to confirm that the step that you are taking is the step that should be next, right? It's not like a magic thing that happens. It's just, hey, here are the foundational things that when you're getting baptized, you're saying publicly, um, is that a is that are you aligned with that? So um, that's all. Again, if you're interested in getting baptized, it's not too late to get baptized next Sunday. Although it will take some getting through the blue book first. I'm sorry, the begin book first. Um, let one of us know. And uh, thank you. And I'm going to bring up Abel Lopez now, who is the youth pastor, youth director, sorry, at uh, New Life Midway, so part of this big network of churches that we have. And also, for those of you in the room who this means something to, he's a Moody grad. Hey, don't, don't hate on Moody. Don't hate on Moody now. Hey, good morning, New Life Lincoln Park. My name is Abel, and uh, I have the privilege of 
speaking uh, to you guys here this morning. Super excited that Pastor Bobby asked me. Super honored to do it, honestly. A quick shout out to uh, Zachary, Jason, and uh, oh, I met somebody else, and I forgot your name. I'm so sorry. Um, Quick shout out to you guys for saying hi to me at the beginning. You guys are awesome. Um, Really, again, excited to be here, thankful to be here. Uh, Like Sue said, I'm the one youth director over at New Life Midway. Um, I've been there since May, but I've been in New Life uh, since last year of August 22, and I've loved, loved, loved New Life. Um, I don't know if I feel bad saying this, but it's part, probably my favorite church that I've been a part of. Um, so hopefully my previous churches don't ever see this recording uh, so that they don't feel bad. But it is my favorite church that I've ever been a part of. I'm so excited to be with you guys here this morning. Um, today we are going to be detouring a little bit from Leviticus, um, from the regularly scheduled program. We are going to be in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you, you have your phone, you can turn it on, go to your Bible app. Daniel chapter 3. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we will jump into this morning's message. Lord Jesus, thank you so much, um, God, for this opportunity that we have to be in your word, Lord, to um, enter it, to dissect it, Lord, to apply it to our lives, God. I pray that this morning, God, you would soften our hearts, open our ears, Lord. I pray that today, any words that come out of my mouth, Lord, Would they be honoring? Would they be glorifying to you, God? I pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to apply what we're learning about and hearing about, God, that they wouldn't just stay on our notepad, that it wouldn't just come in one ear and out the other, God, but that it would enter the deepest parts of our heart, Lord, and God, that it would completely transform the way we live and interact with you, Lord Jesus. We pray all these things in your mighty, mighty name, Jesus. Amen. So, um... I've been living in Chicago, um, born and raised, but spent a couple years in Phoenix. And my last stint in Phoenix, I lived there from April of 2020 to August of 2022. And now, when I was out there, uh, I I love going to new barbershops. one, because I love getting haircuts and like, like looking clean, but also two, I love building relationships with the barbers themselves. So uh, I found a barbershop probably four or five months into me, uh, probably less than that, probably about three months living at Phoenix, living in Phoenix. Um, and I started building relationships with these guys. And, uh, you know, not your typical uh, men of faith, right? They're, uh, they're, uh, they were rough around the edges, said a lot of crude jokes, said a lot of things that, you know, were uncomfortable at times. But there was one moment in particular that I always remember. There are a couple moments. But this one moment was kind of like the first breakthrough in our relationship and what the relationship started. So I got this question from the owner of the barbershop. Um, and, and he asks me, what do I do for a living? What do you do for a living? So for me, at that point in my life, I was a bivocational. I worked in the church, and I also did um, customer service work for an e-bike company in Phoenix. And so it was at this moment where I realized, well, in in the quickness of my thoughts, I thought I could either tell uh, tell him I'm a bivocational pastor who also does customer service work, or I could tell him I just work in the e-bike company and just sidestep all the awkward conversations that would come after me saying that I work in a church. And unfortunately, under that moment of panic, of pressure, of feeling out of uh, a fear of man, fearing what they would think about me, fearing what they would say about me, fearing the, the conversations or the jokes or the ridicule that might come after that, I told them, 
I worked as a customer service rep for an e-bike company. And then the lies started to creep into my head, right? Oh, you're not a brave enough Christian. You're not, you're not a good enough Christian. You, you are scared of what people think about you, Abel, right? These lies start to creep in into my head. And I can almost guarantee you that I'm not the only one in this room who has experienced a situation like this or something similar to it. If you're a true and committed follower of Jesus, if he's the Lord of your life, if he's the Savior of your life, then you've probably entered in those moments of tension where you're asked about your beliefs, you're asked what you do on your free time, you're asked about somehow in some way your faith in Jesus, and you enter this moment of tension, do I tell him I'm a follower of Jesus, or do I opt out for a simple and easy answer? Do I stay quiet? Do I remain quiet about my faith and try not to make people or myself feel uncomfortable? Or do I proclaim boldly about my faith in Jesus? Maybe it was in the office this past week and you were having a conversation about this Israel and Palestine situation and you weren't bold enough to to, to proclaim your support for Israel. Because you didn't want the the messiness of the conversations after, or maybe the judgment or the the hard questions that would come after that. Maybe it was uh, last year at Thanksgiving, and you're the only Christian in your family, and you know that bringing that up would cause division in your family, where you would get tons of questions, you would get judged, all these things would start to come after you. Maybe it was when you were younger, and you were in high school or college, and you had just become a believer. You just started following Jesus, and your friends started to notice you acting different. You weren't saying the same jokes. You weren't saying the same things. You weren't laughing at the things that they were laughing at, and they start to question, like, what, what happened over the weekend? What happened over summer? And you're like, oh, I just, I matured up a little bit. I want to suggest to you that in those moments of tension, when you're asking yourself, do I be public with my faith? Do I allow people in to know about my relationship with Jesus? I want to suggest to you that those moments don't start in the public world, but they start in the private moments of worship with the Lord. I want to suggest that those moments come down to who and what you are worshiping privately. In other words, what and who you are worshiping privately will almost always determine the decisions that you make publicly. Let me say that again for those of you guys who missed it. Almost always, who and what you worship privately, that means in the quietness of your home, when you're waking up, when you're driving to work, when you're having conversations behind closed doors, what you're thinking, what you're seeing, what you're allowing to sit in your heart, who and what you worship privately will almost always determine the decisions that you make publicly, especially in the moments of tension and fear. There's a great, there's a quote by the greatest basketball of all, uh, basketball player of all time, uh, LeBron James. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I needed to wake you guys up a little bit. Of course, it's Larry Bird. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. 
It's of course MJ, Michael Jordan. And the quote goes like this. MJ says, champions do not become champions when they win in events, but in the hours, weeks, and months, and years they spend preparing for it. The victorious performance itself is merely a demonstration of their championship character. What is Michael saying? He's saying this, at the battle is won in the everyday moments leading up to the championship game. In the discipline, in the worship, in the privateness of our lives. See, for MJ, it was basketball, but for us, for us, it's moments of being maybe public with our faith, being bold with our faith, maybe sharing the gospel. Maybe it's loving on someone, encouraging someone who, who you don't see eye to eye with. That doesn't come in the moment when you're presented with the opportunity. It comes in the, in the, in the everyday moments you've had with the Lord previously leading up to that opportunity. What if the same was true for us? What if living more bold with our faith, living a fearless life, came down to the private moments of our lives where we make intentional, everybody say intentional, intentional choices to make God the center of our lives. What is the center of your life? What do your thoughts, your time, your attention revolve around? What do the decisions that you make flow through? Are you at the center of your life? Is your comfort at the center of your life? Is your security at the center of your life? Is your money at the center of your life? Or is God at the center of your life? Does your worship flow out of God being the one who has rooted himself in your heart? I think about it like this. You guys ever been to uh, Florida and there's those bridges that are like over the ocean and they drive you from one island to the other island? I was on one of these bridges one time when I was little and I couldn't help but wonder how in the world do they have a stinking bridge in the middle of the ocean? Like how is this a thing? And what I realized as I looked more into it because I had to know was that these bridges were dug so deep into the ocean floor they were so rooted into the ocean floor that they could stand as the waves hit them and as the, as the pressure of the ocean crashed against it. Today, as we read Daniel 3, as we look at Daniel 3, I want you to see how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were completely rooted in their relationship with the Lord. And it didn't come in a moment when they were asked to bow down and worship this king, but it came in the days, in the minutes, in the hours leading up to this moment where they spent private time worshiping, crying out to God, letting God into their thoughts. And because of that, we're able to live a fearless life in front of this king. What is at the center of your life? If you're not there yet, go ahead, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read certain verses from each section of the story, but I want to start out specifically with verses 16 and 18. And I want to start out with these because these are the, you could say, the focal point of this chapter, really the focal point of the first six chapters of Daniel. See, uh, Daniel 
uh, and his, uh, his guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been brought under captivity um, by this King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. And they were being forced into a culture that was not their own, in a lot of ways was countercultural to the Jewish tradition they had grown up in. So let me go ahead and, and read verse 16 and 18. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. It could be on the screen too here. 16 and 18 says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, highlight this, uh, circle this, do whatever you got to do in your notes. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up to worship. Here's the bottom line of what we'll be talking about tonight. Tonight, talking to youth groups this morning. Here's the bottom line of what we'll be talking about this morning. And if you have notes, you can write this down. Faithful worship leads to fearless leaving, living. I know on the, big, on the screen it says faithful worship is necessary. I changed it this morning. Faithful worship leads to fearless living. So turn to your neighbor real quick and tell him faithful worship leads to fearless living. I thought I would have more time to open up my water bottle. Let me nuance this a little bit, actually. I actually want to add a couple of words, so if you want to add them into your notes, you can. I want to add private. So private faithful worship leads to public fearless living. See, these three Jewish teens were able to respond to the king the way they did because they had been faithfully worshiping God already. If they hadn't been privately in their own homes, in their own hearts, in their own thoughts, spending time with God, listening to God, engaging God, then I'm almost convinced that they probably wouldn't have responded the same way they did to King Nebuchadnezzar as they did in the scripture. God was the center of their lives and everything, everybody say everything, everything revolved around him. In the private moments of their worship, their thoughts, their desires, their wants, their needs, they were firmly rooted in their relationship with the Lord. I broke this chapter up into five different sections. If that helps you, it helped me. I call it the setup, the suspects, the, sus the, no, the setup, the suspects, the, um, oh, what's it called? The suspicion the suspense and the savior. The setup, the suspects, the suspicion, the suspense, and the savior. So we're going to jump into the Daniel chapter three. If you can, go ahead and go to verse one. We're going to read verse one, and then we're going to read verses four to seven. We're going to sit there for a little bit, and then we'll keep it, we'll keep it moving. So Daniel one says this. Daniel three, verse one says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits, and he set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Huge statue. Verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, 
circle that word commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, and lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, shout out to my Irish brothers and sisters, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Neb has set up. Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the prophets heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. See, Daniel and his friends, like I said before, had been taken under captivity from this King Nebuchadnezzar under Babylon, were being forced, were being forced to um, let go of their traditions, let go of their convictions, let go of their values, and to turn and become like Babylon's. You see it in chapter 1 when Daniel's forced to eat the food that the king gives them. You see it in chapter 2 when Daniel's forced to interpret a dream a certain way to please the king. And you see it again in Daniel chapter 3 with his friends. So the king makes this huge statue of gold and then creates a law that requires people to forcefully worship this statue. The Bible says that the king commanded people to worship. And I want you to notice also, verse 7, that the Bible says, all people fell down and worshiped. If we aren't currently worshiping something else already, culture and the world around you will force you to worship something. See, us as human beings, we're created to worship. We were created to glorify God. We were created to have a deep and intimate connection and relationship with the Lord. And out of that would come our worship to him. See, worship is the response to what we value most. So if we, what we value most is God, then everything will revolve around pleasing God. Our thoughts will revolve around pleasing God. Our behaviors will revolve around pleasing God. Our words will revolve around pleasing God. Our relationship, our work ethic, everything will revolve around pleasing God. But if you are not already firm in your worship to the Lord, if he is not firmly rooted at the center of your life, then culture will force something on you to worship. If you are not clear with your relationship with God, and you are not inviting him in a day-to-day -day practice in the most intimate moments of your life, when no one sees you, when no one hears you, if he is not affecting and permeating every single inch of your life, then something else will. Everyone worships something. We are constantly Worshiping, And it doesn't surprise me that the people in this story, at the sound of the music, fell down to worship because that's all they knew. And look, look around that culture now. People are worshiping all kinds of things. So my question to us is this. What statues have we put up in our lives that we are worshiping? Maybe it's not as obvious. Maybe it's a, a comfort zone. We enjoy our comfort zone so much, and so it doesn't allow us to step out because that has become the center of our lives. Everything in our life revolves around protecting this comfort zone because I don't want to let anyone in or do anything outside of this comfort zone because it's uncomfortable to me. 
Maybe it's security or freedom or money, retirement, whatever it is. We all place different things at the center of our lives that we start to revolve our thoughts and desires and and decisions around. My question to us this morning is, what are the statues that we are revolving around? What, What are the things that have become the center of our lives? How have you allowed your private worship to deviate from the Lord to other things? Now the story is going to pivot a bit because we're entering a moment of tension in the story. See, when not everyone is worshiping as the law commands us to, we get a little bit of conflict in the story. Jump down to verse 10 and 12. This is the part of the story that I like to call the suspects. This is where we are introduced to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the very first time. And verse 10 reads like this, You, O king, this is the king's court talking to him, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So they're just repeating to him, hey, this is what you said, right? This is, this is the law that you made, okay? And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. So here's the accusation. Verse 12. There are certain Jews... King, whom you've appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods, and they don't worship the golden image you have set up. Mm. I can imagine them just like poking his chest. So here we're introduced to the suspects of the story, the people being accused of not bowing down to the king. I remember being a summer camp counselor years ago when I was in high school. And uh, I was over second and third graders, loved the kids, they were awesome. And uh, I, would get, I wouldn't get annoyed by a lot of things that the kids would do. Um, but there was one thing in particular that would always annoy me. And that was when, with another, when one kid would come up to tell on someone about something that I hadn't seen, and just to tell on them. Like, they would almost get joy out of snitching on their, on their friend or on their peer, right? And I was like, I don't know why that bothered me so much. Like, I'm like, I feel like this shouldn't bother me because maybe you are doing the right thing. But also, this is kind of annoying that you're doing this right here, right now. And I just imagine as I was reading this story that King Nebuchadnezzar was kind of like, okay, this is a little annoying, but all right, we got to figure this out, Okay. And so everyone repeat after me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Daniel's boys. They had grown up with Daniel and had the same values as Daniel. And I want you to notice what the Bible says about these three guys. In verse 12, it says this. They pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods. And they don't worship the golden images that you have set up. Now, those are very three distinct statements made um, about these guys. And anytime the Bible, when you read in the Bible, you see uh, statements being repeating themselves. I know they're not repeated word for word, but in a sense, they're talking about the same things, right? What were these guys trying to communicate to the king? They were trying to emphasize that these dudes really don't care about your statue, king. They were almost insinuating and instigating the king to kind of nag him on, to say something to these guys. 
So anytime you're reading the Bible and you see repetition like that, know that the Bible is trying to make an emphasis. These guys really did not care about the statue the king had put up. And you know why they didn't care about the statue that the king had put up? Because they had been faithfully worshiping God in the private moments of their lives. They understood that the king that was putting up this statue wasn't nearly or anywhere near as powerful as the God that they had been spending intimate time with on a day-to-day basis. They knew that the king, he could put up statues all he wanted to. He could put up images. He could put up anything he wanted to. They wouldn't bow down because they understood that God, God was the center of their lives. That they were rooted in their relationship with, with the Lord. That they understood that because of my private worship by myself with with God, I'm not going to let a king or culture bend my values and my convictions to worship him. You know how sold out these guys had to have been for God? I mean, they had to be just on fire for God, for them to look at a king who could kill them right then and there and say, and, and to say, we're not going to worship you. For them to, 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 be, to be told by these other, the king's court, that these guys are not paying attention to the king Neb, they're not paying attention to what he puts up, that they have no business, they don't want to worship you, king. You know how sold out for God these guys must have been? I mean, they were working in the king's court. At the end of chapter two, if you just look up a little bit, it'll say they were put over the affairs of the providence of Babylon. These dudes were in the king's court. They were working for the king, yet they weren't worshiping the king. I, I, I think as I was reading it, I, it, it reminded me of my time in Phoenix and when I worked in the office at the e-bike company. You know how crazy it would have been for me to pull up to that e-bike company with another competitor's e-bike? You know how, you know the ridicule I would have gotten from my coworkers, from the CEO, from my sister, who's my supervisor? I mean, she would have just been like, she like, that's not my brother anymore. Why? Because I was literally going into our office with the competitor's e-bike. This is kind of the same tension these dudes were, were stepping into. Yes, they work for the king, but we're not going to worship you, king. We'll, we'll, you know, handle the business. We'll do what we got to do, but you do not have our full devotion. And now we turn our attention to the king. Let's see how this king reacts to the accusations made about this guy. Go ahead and go to verse 13 and 14. This is the suspicion, the suspicion part of the story. Verse 13 says this, King then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? All right. This is a moment where they have time to respond, right? This is a moment where they, they could say, No, no, we, we've, been, we've been worshiping your king. Yeah, no, we've been, it's all good. No, 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 we, we, no we've, in, yeah, in our homes we've been... We've been, we've been worshiping you, king. A little side eye. Look what they said. They answered, 
to the king and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he doesn't, be it known to you, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. This is why I say that private worship leads to public fearless living. Because to everyone else listening to these guys speak, they're like, these guys, these dudes are crazy. Like, they're, they're just telling this king straight up that they are not going to, like, are they, do they know what's going to happen? Like, they're going to die, right? But the guys had centered their lives around God. They had stemmed and rooted and cemented their faith in who God says they are and who God is. They had been worshiping God for years, faithfully, over time. There was nothing that this king could do to scare them. They understood, they understood that even if God wasn't going to save them, that their faith in what God had already done in the history of Israel, in their own lives, was enough to justify that God is real and that I'm going to follow him even if it means dying. But that doesn't just come on a one-time decision. That comes over a repetitive decision to faithfully follow, know, and get to understand who God is. They didn't just come to this understanding off of coming to church one time. They didn't come to this understanding off of placing their faith in God one time. They didn't even come to this understanding off of just being and going through the motions of their faith. This came after a repetitive day-to-day decision to make God the center of their lives. It's built on consistency, repetition, vulnerability, honesty, and transparency. I mean, think about it like this. If you're married here, as you spent more and more time with your spouse, you got to know them more. You got to know their their faults more. You got to know their, 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 their good qualities about them and you built relationship with them over time. You guys drew closer together over a a back and forth openness, transparency, and vulnerability. You built a relationship with them. The same thing that we do with our friends. The same thing that we do with our kids if we have kids. The same thing I do with my students in the youth group. It's It's a back and forth relationship of stepping into sometimes a messiness or a tension but why do we think, why do we think that we can not apply that same logic to our relationship with the Lord? Why do we think that one time a week coming to church or once in a, once in a blue moon going to a small group or a life group, why do we think that just getting baptized one time or placing our faith in Jesus for the first time is enough to develop an intimate and growing and faithful and vibrant and thriving relationship with God? 
It's not. It's really not. But we don't apply the same logic that we do with our human relationships with God. And I found in my life that the most intimate times and the times that I felt closest to God and the times that I, I, I feel like my relationship with the Lord is, 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 is vibrant and thriving and, and, and I feel in tune with him is the moments that I've just genuinely been vulnerable with God, opened up with God, been, been uh, consistent with God, have shown up day after day after day. And it's not because he's getting closer to us or anything like that, but us as human beings need to develop relationship with the Lord. And that comes with time and repetition and consistency. Let's look at how the king responds. Let's look at the suspense of the story. Verse 19 through 21 says this. <clears throat> then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind the guys and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 21, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, I can imagine, I can imagine that when the guys were just like, you know what? We're not worshiping you, right? I can imagine like that was probably maybe it was maybe, maybe it was 10 seconds, maybe it was two minutes. Who knows how long the king took to respond to them? But I can imagine that it, for them, it probably felt like a long time. You ever been in a moment where you say something to maybe your, your, your parent or um, your parent, your kid says something to you that's just out of like, out of left field. And you're like, what? Like, and that kid like realizes that they, they messed up and they're like, uh-oh. And, and then for them, it feels like an eternity for you to respond. But for you, you're like, processing what in the world they just said. This happened to my nephew when he was little. He uh, got in the habit of telling me and his brother whatever anytime we would um, ask him to do something. And he would do it because he genuinely didn't care what we said, but also he wanted to get under our nerves because he knew it ticked us off. But then one glorious day, <sighs> I still remember like it was yesterday. Um, we were sitting at the dinner table and my sister, his mom was there. And my sister asked him to do something. Can you guess the word that came out of his mouth? It was definitely whatever. And when he realized he had messed up, because when you grow up in a Hispanic household and you talk back, it's not pretty. And when he realized he messed up and my sister looked at him, I looked at my nephew, I looked at the other nephew, he's looking at his mom. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is wonderful. This is good. This is justice. He, uh, yeah, he, he knew he made a mistake. But for him, he real, like in that moment, he was like, oh my gosh, what did I just say? And for him, it probably felt like an eternity. And so I, I, I would imagine that tension, that, that suspense that the guys were feeling in that moment talking to King Neb. And they knew they were in the right, right? But they're probably like, oh crap, like we're going to die. Like this is it. This is, we're, we're going to die. And King Nebuchadnezzar kept his promise and threw them into the furnace. And notice a cool little detail the Bible says. They kept on their tunics, their clothes, everything, everything. They were just tossed in with everything, right? And that's important because the Bible ties it back in later on in the story. 
Now we come to the final act of the story, the Savior. Verse 24 says this. I'm going to read through 29. The first couple of verses will be on the screen, but uh, the rest of them you could just follow along in your Bible. Verse 24 says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men, into the, uh, three men bound into the fire? They answered to the king, true, facts, yes, we did. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. I always think, like, what were they doing? In the, like, they're just chilling, they're just hanging out, walking, like, what do you do when you're in a furnace and you're not burning? Like, what's happening? And the satraps, the, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men, that the hair of their heads were not singed, and their cloaks, look at the detail come back, were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And if you've ever been around a bonfire, you know, you know. If you know, you know. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielding up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Last two verses. Therefore, I make a decree. Any nation or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall definitely be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no god who was able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted again. This is the second promotion for these guys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I'm wondering if he switched from the fiery furnace to being torn limb from limb because he's like, okay, if fire's not gonna kill people nowadays, then definitely being torn limb from limb uh, by a line or whatever definitely will be. See, God didn't just keep the guys from being consumed by the fire. He showed up in the fire. Don't miss this. Don't miss this super important detail. Faithful worship to God will surely lead to a public fearless living because when God is at the center of your heart, it does not matter what you go through. It does not matter what kind of challenge you face, what kind of obstacle is in your way, what kind of suffering you're facing. It doesn't matter how difficult life gets because when God is at the center of your life, you have an understanding that you are firmly rooted and protected by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But that public declaration of your faith, that boldness, that fearless living, that living in the midst of difficult circumstances gets built up in the private moments of your time with God in the quiet, still moments in the morning, in the afternoon, on your drive back home from work. It gets built up in the moments where no one else is looking, when no one else can hear or understand your thoughts, when no one else sees what you're laughing at or, what you're talk or who you're talking to. It gets built up in the private moments of being in the word, 
of prayer, of worship, of, of worship, listening to worship music, worshiping God with your mouth, fasting. It comes in those private moments. I'll close with this. I, I was uh, at a haunted house when I was really little, probably like eight or nine years old. And the first time going to a haunted house, going with my family, and I think it was like a kid haunted house. Like it wasn't even an actual haunted house. I don't think my parents would take me to an actual haunted house, but they might have. I don't remember. And, um, and I, I, I thought I was bold enough to go first as an eight-year-old. And um, so I go first, and uh, the first sign of someone trying to scare me, I immediately turn around and look for my dad. Why did I know I can run back to my dad? Because I knew him on an intimate level. I knew he would protect me. I knew he loved me. I knew he saw me. I knew he wouldn't let any scary monster try to hurt me. I knew that ultimately I could be safe under the jacket of my dad because I knew his intention for me. I knew his love for me. I knew his dedication to me. Some of you guys here this morning may be questioning God's love for you, may be questioning his, his protection of you, may be questioning his, his faithfulness to you, to you. Can I just let you know he already proved it ultimately. God literally already proved his love for us when he sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross and to be risen again three days later for our sins. See, in Jesus, we can have that private moment of worship because in Jesus, he's already done it. He's already lived the most private life. He's already lived the most bold life. See, in Jesus, he's already allowed us in by trusting in him and what he did for us to have private moments of worship where he is the center of our lives. I want to encourage you guys this morning, if you haven't been engaging with God on a day-to-day basis, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, today is the day to do that. Today is the day to trust God, to develop a relationship with the Lord, and to continue to seek him privately so you can live fearless in the public moments of your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we're so grateful, we're so thankful, Lord, that you, um, first and foremost, that, Lord, you have sent Jesus down for us, God, that you made a way, the only way, God, to step into relationship with you, that when we place and vocalize our faith in Jesus, when our heart is completely set on following you, Jesus, and when we believe that you have died for our sins, that you have forgiven us and that your blood covers it all, that you were risen again three days later. God, we find complete security, freedom, and safety, salvation. Lord, you become the Lord and the King of our lives and you become the very epicenter of our thoughts, our desires, our wants. Lord, forgive us when we've removed you from the center and we've placed something else in the center. Lord, remove us, uh, forgive us, Lord, when we have worshiped and idolized things that we shouldn't have. Father, we repent. God, we turn back. 
We turn to you, Lord. Father, continue to do a work in our hearts. Continue to draw us back to the private moments of worship so we can live boldly and publicly for you without fear and full of faith. Pray all these things in the mighty, mighty, beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we're going to close with a song.